best question to ask many people in many circumstances. Whenever you're faced with a situation, just say, if you could do one thing, what's the one most important thing you could do? It's incredibly powerful. Welcome to 20 Minute Leaders. Just sit back, relax, and learn from the leaders of today. It's a journey. Each one is different, unique, inspiring. Let's get started. This episode is powered by Jay Ventures, a community-driven VC fund in Silicon Valley and is sponsored by Hillel Stanford, UpWest, and Hippo Insurance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 107. And we have Jeff Epstein, operating partner at Bessemer Venture Partners and the former CFO of Oracle and many others. Jeff is an operating partner at Bessemer's Silicon Valley office, where he primarily works with chief executive and financial officers to share and implement best practices. He was the former CFO of Oracle with a market value of $150 billion and previously the CFO of several public and private companies. He teaches the Lean Launchpad class at Stanford University's Graduate School of Engineering with Steve Blank. Additionally, Jeff serves on the board of Kaiser Permanente, Twilio, Shutterstocks, and until recently, Booking Holding. Uh, Jeff Epstein, thank you so much for joining us at 20 Minute Leaders. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so if I started to give a, a brief bio about you, I wouldn't be able to ask you any questions because 20 minutes would be over. But just for context, a previous CFO of Oracle, but not just any CFO because you've also been on the boards of the coolest companies currently on Twilio and Shutterstock, incredible companies, but you're on the board of Booking Holdings. Uh, and you joined, you said, when it was a billion dollars in revenues growing up to 80 Billion dollars in market value growing to 80 billion. Wow. Okay. So billion dollars in market value going up to 80 billion. But you're also on the on the board of Kaiser uh, Permanente. Kaiser Permanente is a large nonprofit healthcare organization that provides both healthcare, hospitals, and health insurance for 12 million people, mostly in California and the West Coast. Unbelievable. And you mentioned 230,000 employees. Right. Unbelievable. So you're sitting on these boards. I'm going to have to, at some point, understand how do you even juggle all of these different positions and how do you then take the skills from the CFO at Oracle and now at Apex, which hopefully we'll be able to get to as well. But but Jeff, how do you do it all? It, it's a serious question. Uh, I mean, when I think of who I want to, what, like the level that I want to get to one day and have these incredible experiences, uh, you're the persona right now. Oh, well, thank you very much. Well, you know, I spent 25 years working full time as a chief financial officer where every day you have uh, people who report to you and you, you have a boss and a board and quarterly earnings. And uh, you know that was a lot of responsibility. Now that I'm retired from full-time work, I, I serve on these boards, but- Retired, you know, okay? I just want to put the word retired in front of everything that I just said, okay? <laughs> well, the difference between being a board member is usually you go to the board meeting, you ask a lot of questions, you say, boy, it sounds like you got a lot of problems. I'll see you at next board meeting. And, and management of the people have to fix the problems. We just talk about them. So you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, governance responsibility, and if occasionally, if you have to change the CEO and things like that, there's a right. lot of work. But you know, and there are certain companies like Wells Fargo, and over the last few years, they've had or PG&E when going through bankruptcy, they have a very intense experience. But if the company is doing well, it's uh, it's a lot easier to be a board member than to the day-to-day responsibility of being executive. Of course, of course. And, I, and of course, I, I gent- very rewarding as well, because my job is to ask questions. And so I love learning. I love asking questions. And over the year, after 40 years, you've asked a lot of questions, you get to learn a lot. So it reminds me of the of the nice story of when you go to the doctor and, uh, and you, you, something is hurting in your knee and the doctor hits your knee and says, OK, now $500, please. 
And you ask, what, you just hit the knee? And he said, no, 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 I've been studying for 40 years how to hit your knee. So it sounds like the questions that you're asking now, they're not just any questions. They're questions with dozens of years and a wealth of experience that you bring with you. Right, exactly. I'll give you an example of a board meeting. I've been trying to talk to some of my CEOs about this. Uh, Many of the people on this call might have actually participated in a board meeting. And, And in my mind, there's sort of three parts to a board meeting. There's the compliance part, the audit committee report, compensation committee, things like that, which in a private company is very short. In a public company, it's there's some amount of time. And then the remainder of the time often is the management telling the board what they've been doing, reporting on what's going on. Here's here's our product strategy. Here's our sales and marketing strategy. Here's our forecast. I call that the show and tell part. And then there's another part of the meeting, the third part, which is here are decisions we're thinking about, but we haven't made them yet. And we'd like to tell you, you know, we have three choices and here's the pros and cons of each choice. We recommend option A. We're planning on doing an option A, but what do you think? And maybe your, your questions and your guidance will change our mind. So should we grow faster and burn more money, lose more money, or should we grow slower and make more money? Right. Should we, we have one product just in the U.S. Should we add a second product in the U.S. or should we take our first product and expand to the U.K.? You know, those kinds of decisions. So uh, I personally find the, the decisions we have not yet made to be a much more valuable board meeting as opposed to the show and tell. And the show and tell, in my view, can be done in writing you know, put everything, you know, create this big presentation, send it out to the board a week in advance. We'll read it all. Right. We'll ask questions if we don't understand it. But to spend most of the board time just telling us what's in the written material is, to me, not taking full advantage of the board. So that's an example of the kind of thing that I've learned over the years, which, you know, 20 years ago, I probably didn't understand. And now I try to nudge my CEOs in that direction. How would you describe your relationship with your CEOs as a, as a board member? And you have quite a few CEOs that you have to be in, t- in touch with. Is this a, a, a friendly relationship? Is this more of a, a, a boss-employee relationship? How, what's, the, what's the intimacy like over there? Well, it depends. Uh, in, in, if, if I were for the venture capital partners or private equity partners, uh, they essentially they are appointed by their firm or in a private equity firm. Maybe they hire the CEO. Right. And the companies that I'm involved in personally, because I'm always an independent, the CEO meets me and personally wants recruits me to the board. So the CEO has essentially hired me to be a board member. Right. And essentially the CEO could fire me if they decide they don't like me on the board. That's never happened, but they could. And so, you know, my, my, my role is to help make the CEO as effective as he or she can be. And so it's by asking questions, by telling stories and, and anecdotes. So one way to think about it uh, is so this, my dog's in the background. I don't know if you can hear I love story. it. It just <laughs> adds. It adds. <laughs> so uh, the uh, Mark Twain said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And so if I've been involved in a company before that had a similar problem, I might tell the story. Here's what the situation was. It sounds similar. Here's what they did. Here's what happened. But that doesn't mean you should do the same thing because every situation is different. Right. So you were telling me about about Mark Twain. Yeah. So Mark Twain said history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And so my interpretation of that is if if I'm in a board meeting and something comes up with the company and there's a challenge or a problem, I'll say, well, in two or three other situations, I had a similar type of situation. Here's what the situation was. Here's what the company did. It worked or it didn't work. That doesn't mean that you, the CEO, should do the same thing because your situation is going to be somewhat different. But if you if you never had any similar experience, you're 
you're you're flying blind. Whereas if you have the benefit of mine or other people's experience, you can triangulate and piece together the pieces of the puzzle and say, well, I, th I think this is relevant. And then you, you make up your own mind. So right. I basically work as a board member, not by telling people what to do, but by asking questions and by telling stories. That, that, I think that's incredible. And, you know, I, I, I haven't gotten into that position and I very much hope to one day be able to uh, be the C a CEO where you're on the board of. So uh, wait for that request one day. Uh, but, but it sounds to me that a, a lot of these things, you know, you can look up online and, and read case studies from business schools and, and understand that how you get to point B from point A. But, I, but it sounds like a lot of the added benefit that you would bring to the table is not just from it's not just A and then B, but it's the whole process and the whole and and the relationships and the intricacies that and the complexity that goes into it. So you really you you can you know all the details of the whole process and not just the outcome, right? Yeah, it's not only the details; it's also the emotional impact of having lived through it. Right. So you've probably heard the phrase "raise money when you can, not when you need it." And if you hear that, you say, "Okay, well that makes sense. That's logical." But I've actually lived through it. And I'll tell you that story. I was the CFO of DoubleClick during the internet boom. And our stock went from, we went public at $250 million of market value. And we were up to $11 billion. So wow. we were, and we were trading at 22 times revenue, a huge price. We were still losing money. We were growing fast. And we were the leading internet advertising technology company. But by any measure, the company was fully valued. I mean, we, we clearly weren't undervalued. Uh, and so we decided to raise money and we did a follow-on offering and we were in the market raising 700 million dollars to public company and we had a road show we started monday morning we were to price thursday night and on wednesday at lunch i'm presenting uh to investors at a luncheon meeting and i get a call from my office said that the message said call nasdaq so i call nasdaq <laughs> and they say you know we have a problem and i go really what's the problem they said well we have a lot of sell orders and they said Really? Well, how many? He says, well, we have so many sell orders and no buying interest that we're stopping trading in your stock. And so for the rest of that Wednesday afternoon, our stock didn't trade. And what had happened was there was an article in USA Today that morning about how we DoubleClick was violating people's privacy. And that just spooked investors. They didn't know what to think about it. So we sit with our investment bankers Wednesday night and we say, what's going to happen? And they predict accurately that the stock's going to open up tomorrow morning down 20%. So a $9 billion valuation. And the question is, should we just pull the offering or should we go ahead with the offering at the 20% lower valuation? And my feeling was the price that it was yesterday is irrelevant. The question is, is $9 billion a fair price, yes or no? And for a company with $500 million revenue losing money, I thought that was a very, still a very good valuation. And even though we had $200 million cash, we didn't need the money. I thought it was just a sensible thing to raise money when you can. So we, I recommended and then we went ahead and raised money. And then, of course, the whole market, internet market collapsed, the advertising market collapsed. Our revenue over the next two years dropped by 50% from wow. 500 million to 250 million. But we had 700 million in cash. So we had a very strong balance sheet. So it's one thing to say it, it's nothing to live through it. And, That's unbelievable. Uh, so, and we all have, you know, if you're old enough, you all have stories like that. That's just unbelievable. And of course, throughout this whole thing, I, I gently forgot to mention that uh, that you are teaching one of the most popular courses at Stanford, uh, which I very much hope to take uh, myself one day, hopefully this upcoming winter. And you're also an operating partner at Bessemer, one of the world's leadest, le uh, leading venture capital firm. What, what do you do there? What does that even mean, an operational partner? Well, I'll talk about that, but I do want to talk about the class too. Um, yes. An operating partner means I'm not an investing partner. 
So I don't make any decisions to invest Bessemer's money. I can invest my own money side by side with Bessemer. And since I was a career CFO, what I've done is I've created a CFO advisory board among Bessemer's portfolio company CFOs. So we have 100 portfolio company CFOs. And in any company, there might be 100 or 200 or 300 employees. That CFO probably has no one else in the company to talk to about a finance-related issue. Right. But across the portfolio, there's 100 people to talk to. So we meet in pre-COVID times. We meet in person once a quarter. Now we're meeting online. We have an online platform where people are asking each other questions a couple of times a week. There's a big database of questions over the last seven years. So it's a very rich, valuable resource of a peer group among our portfolio companies. And so I do that with the CFOs. And then the CEOs, uh, I help them in, in business or finance or capital raising questions or operation questions as well. Wow, incredible. But about the class, uh, or the Lean Launchpad class is, it's in the winter quarter, it's Engineering 245 in the Graduate School of Engineering, but uh, business students typically are half the class. And uh, what it, it's teams of four or five students with a startup idea. And in 10 weeks, they're required to interview 100 potential customers, wow. build multiple prototypes, uh, have ex- run many experiments, and with any luck, they generate their first revenue by the 10th week. And we've had now, uh, I guess a, this, is my, this will be my eighth year teaching. So wow. we've had uh, you know, quite a, what, 100 teams or so uh, graduate from the class. And uh, we've had maybe 15 teams actually form uh, companies and get funding. And some of them are doing quite wow. well. Wow, that's, and, a, that's huge. Some revenues and some very wow. exciting companies. Like uh, one of them is, uh, is Fresh Technologies, which is AI for grocery ordering. One is wow. Zoom which is uh, Uber for children uh, or for schools uh, type of system. Uh, one of them is Nova, which is uh, financial. Uh, it, it's, it's getting credit for, for legal immigrants who might otherwise find it hard to get credit. So a lot of really interesting ideas and it's terrific. I just love working with these incredibly talented students and it's a great experience for students to get as close to running a business while you're still, without dropping out. So. It's I love it. And class. I just get inspired by, again, in the first few minutes, you mentioned that you're tired. And I think it just speaks to your passion, to everything that you're doing, that you're considered yourself, you're considering yourself retired, yet you do more than, you know, people do in a lifetime. And <laughs> it's no, it, to me, I mean, that's really the inspiration, you know, all the all the tips and tricks that they're amazing, very insightful. But the fact that at the end, I get to speak to somebody who's calling themselves retired, uh, yet they're doing extraordinary things. I mean, almost everything that you're doing here is a world-class level that any any amazing entrepreneur would wish they could do. Uh, to me, that's inspiring. And that's definitely uh, one of my goals in life to be able to say that I'm retired yet work uh, as, as much as you do. Uh, Jeff, I have to ask, CFO Oracle, uh, everybody knows Oracle and, and the, the incredible things that this company has done. You've seen it also in, in earlier on. Tell, what does even a CFO do? I don't get to speak to many CFOs in my daily life. Well, of course, the, the CFO at any size company does uh, is, is responsible for the same functions, you know, accounting, right. treasury, uh, risk, uh, uh, capital raising, uh, financial planning and forecasting. Uh, what uh, the difference is, is that when I was the CFO of DoubleClick years ago, I started out, we had 180 people and I probably did 25% of the work myself. I would run the Excel models myself and then wow. the investor presentations myself. And then I delegate 75% of the time. You know, you start off in your career, you do 100% yourself, you have no one to delegate to. Right. At that time, you know, I was, a, I was a manager, I had a team, 
initially I had a team of maybe 10 people. It grew to, you know, probably at the peak there, I would say maybe uh, 100 people in finance out of 2,000, typically 5% of the headcounts in finance. Uh, but at Oracle, I did virtually 0% personally and delegated 100%. So yeah. if I had written the investor relations presentation myself, the head of investor relations would have said, you know, why am I here? <laughs> so sure. if, even if I have ideas about investor relations, you have to, I think the, the best way to do it is to sit down with the head of investor relations and say, you know, here are some of my ideas, but you know, you go off and do it, and then I'll right. give you some guidance. But fundamentally, it's a leadership role as opposed to, uh, and it's a decision making role as opposed to a doing role. So it's, it's, it changes quite a bit. Oracle is an incredibly well run organization; it has been for decades, and forty percent profit margins, uh, and wow, it's extremely good at what it does. What so, I, what, what I was asking though, which was I think I think it's very interesting. I mean, you've grown as a CFO from, you know, early stage startups to in terms of annual revenues all the way up to the billions. It can't be the same mindset and the same, you know, day to day responsibilities and, and thinking. You have to be transitioning yourself. So what, what are some what is that like transitioning from, you know, millions to billions? Well, I did it over 25 years. It wasn't overnight. So uh, still sounds very is, fast. That, that, that is a big difference. Uh, and between DoubleClick and Oracle, I was the CFO of uh, a big group at Nielsen, uh, the television ratings and internet ratings company. So they were a global company with many thousands of employees. So I had that, that exposure to large companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, you know, one difference that, you know, Larry Ellison uh, years ago, the founder and chairman of Oracle, uh, he, he, Oracle started with a country structure, grew very fast in the early days, and they had Oracle US, Oracle UK, Oracle Japan. And one day around, uh, I'd say 20 years ago, he said, we, we are a big company now, but we're operating like 75 small companies. And what we should do is centralize and so and to take advantage of the economies of scale. And so over the course of about two years, they went from a 75 different country structure to one global structure. So each country had its own CEO and its own CFO. And then when it was all over, there was no other CEOs, no other CFOs. I was the only person at Oracle with the title of CFO. Wow. There was only one global controller, one head of marketing, things like that. Uh, and there are trade-offs. You know, it could be centralized or decentralized. But Oracle was an example of an extreme case of very effective and efficient centralization. In contrast, Booking Holdings grew through acquisition. And we own Booking.com. Priceline, Kayak, OpenTable, wow. uh, and other companies. And each of those businesses had its own, not only its own CEO and CFO, but had its own complete business. Right. There, was, there was almost no shared resources. And it also ran extremely well as a very decentralized entrepreneurial organization. So there's no right answer, but I think whatever, whichever strategy you have, you want to execute it well. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Jeff, I can't believe our, our time is almost up. It's so sad every time. Uh, you know, give me one or two earned secrets, true earned secrets that you, that you would give me, a young entrepreneur, uh, just starting my journey, hopefully trying to make an, going to try to make an impact and a dent on the world in a positive way. What, what are really extraordinary things that I should be keeping in mind over the next uh, decade as I pursue this dream? Hmm. Well, uh, if, let me ask, answer that two ways. For, for entrepreneurs, if you're starting a company from scratch, uh, what we teach in this class is the first step is to get to product market fit. 
And so what you want to, my advice for most companies, software companies, uh, is to try to create the smallest possible product with the smallest number of customers who love you a lot. And uh, Paul Graham, who found Y Combinator, puts it this way. He said, you'd rather have 10 customers who love you than a million customers who like you. Yeah. And the logic is, if, you have ten, if you've created a product that 10 customers love, I'm pretty confident you can find an 11 and then you can find a 12. But if you have a lot of customers who just like you, you know, tomorrow they're going to go on and like something else. Right. So you want to start as small. And if you think about, you know, uh, Facebook started just at Harvard. And within two weeks, he had 90% of all Harvard students loving Facebook. And Airbnb started with literally renting an airbed in someone's apartment. So they started with a very small product view and a very small number of customers, but they built huge companies. And so I think, you know, you can't build a jet engine company that way, but for many businesses, you can. Uh, that's on the entrepreneur side. On the, if you're an employee, my favorite uh, sort of tactic is if when you're interviewing for a job, you're in it, you're gonna have a boss and ask your boss, tell, tell your boss this, say, uh, listen, let's pretend you hire me. Let's imagine you hire me. And a year from now, you're sitting giving me your my performance review. And you say, boy, it's I made a great decision, Jeff, hiring you for the following three, because you've accomplished the following three things. What are those three things? Uh... What it does is it forces your hiring manager to crystallize what his or her expectations are of you. And then if you know exactly what the expectations are, then you can exceed them. Can I reverse that and use that as the hiring manager as a tactic to really align expectations properly and sort of give my ideal performance review ahead of time and then and then have them try to match it throughout the year? Yeah, I think that's a great a second application. And then a third I love it. Is when you, if you start a new job and you haven't already had that conversation, have that conversation with your boss the first week of your job. Uh, because it's... You know, some, many managers are not, if a, a good leader will do that anyway, but many managers and leaders aren't experienced and just don't know that, that tactic. And, and, and then you can go for a long time thinking you're doing the, what you should be doing and realizing that you're not necessarily focused on the top. Role. I imagine that that grows in the, in the few orders of magnitude and tech when a lot of leaders are not necessarily leaders, but they're more, you know, tech experts who've grown to be team leaders organically through their organization. Yeah. A similar example, I, I, I focus there on three things, but an even more powerful technique is to focus on one thing. So I sat at a dinner party once next to George Roberts of KKR, Colbert uh, Kravis Roberts, and we were talking about the problems of education in America. And he said, you know, Jeff, if you could do one thing to improve education in America, what would it be? And I had thought a lot about education, but I actually never answered. I never thought of that particular What's one? If I only could do one thing, what's the one most important thing? And I realized that's actually the best question to ask many people in many circumstances. Whenever you're faced with a situation, just say, if you could do one thing, what's the one most important thing you could do? It's incredibly powerful. I love it. I just love it. Jeff, before we leave, uh, I have to ask you a question that I ask every person on the show. And I'm especially curious to hear your answer. I'd love to hear three words that you would use to describe yourself. Or if I were to ask any of the CEOs that you've worked with, whether they're in Shutterstock or, or Booking or Kaiser, what, how would they, what, what would they think of when they think of Jeff Epstein? Curious. Yeah. Analytical. Helpful. I love it. Jeff, thank you so much for the inspiration. Thank you for the time. I can't even imagine how you're juggling everything that you're doing, yet you're still giving me these 20 minutes. Uh, so thank you for your generosity. I'll add that as the fourth word. And, uh, and yeah, have, uh, uh, stay safe and stay healthy. 
Great, Michael. Thank you very much. And, yeah. I, and I'll, see you, I'll see you in class in the winter. Uh, well, I, I'm sorry to say you actually have to apply to the class and get accepted. So that was, that was, I'm just I'm just putting in the hint, but I'll, but I'll definitely apply. Sounds good. <laughs> I'm planting <Great>. the seeds. <laughs> okay. Take, take care. Bye bye. Bye.